everyone, welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, and today we're talking about one of my favourite topics, masculinity, and who better to talk about it with than the man who was fired from Eton for his lecture on patriarchy. It is, of course, Mr. Will Nolan. Thanks for doing the show, Will. Thanks for having me, Nick. Pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, so I, we can't go into it too much. You've kind of, you want to move on from it, which I totally understand, but maybe you could briefly recap it, if you like, and just say what you've been up to since that, because it was a, like a couple of years ago. Yeah. So I got sacked late 2020 from Eton College, where I'd worked for nine years, I think, at that point. And it was for a lecture for the Perspectives course. And it's called Perspectives because it's supposed to give students all kinds of different perspectives on cultural topics to spark debate. And this is for the oldest boys at the college, the sixth formers. So they're about to go into the adult world and they should be ready to hear robust defenses of opinions they disagree with and really get stuck in. Turns out, though, that that wasn't allowed on this particular topic of masculinity. And they weren't allowed to hear the lecture because a colleague took offense to it before it was actually aired to them. So it was shut down and I took a stand on the principle of freedom of speech, that debate's important in classrooms, and we can't shield kids who are supposed to be inquiring intellectuals from being challenged from all angles. But no, turns out that if somebody gets upset and claims it creates an unsafe working environment for them, it constitutes harassment. So it's what we've seen elsewhere in schools, universities, throughout the world, snowflake culture, but now it's even the professors, the teachers, who are saying that idea is not allowed into the classroom. Yeah, absolutely mental. And people can go and watch your interview with Andrew Dore from GB News at the time, or there's a good interview on Unheard. But we're going to sort of talk about other areas and more what you've been up to since. And what have you been doing? You, you, do, um, you do a podcast now, you do various things. Yeah, so I've been continuing my work as a private tutor because I love teaching literature. That's what I was doing for a living before being sacked ever since graduating from university. So I do some of that. And that's working with kids of all ages, all different backgrounds. That's great. Keeping all the teaching skills sharp. And I'm also every Friday on YouTube, rotating across our different channels, doing something called the Catholic Masculinity Podcast with three guys from America. Tim Gordon, Nicholas Stumphauser, and Elliot Hulse. That's been going well. We're about 50 episodes in. I'm continuing with my writing as well on Substack and a couple of recent ventures too, trying to do something to solve the dating crisis in the West because there are lots of traditionally minded men and women who aren't finding each other. They're saying that things like Tinder, for example, Bumble, whatever it might be, these apps just don't really work anymore, especially not for the men. So we're trying to return to a traditional matchmaking service so we pull people who all watch our content similar values and then we can pair them up the other venture is helping guys who are struggling in their marriages because apart from getting people married in the first place the other problem we've got in our culture today is divorce marriages falling apart for all kinds of reasons so i'm helping guys with some marriage coaching when they're facing that to try to turn things around and that's been going well so far all right, excellent. Sounds like you're doing good work. Uh, maybe we'll get the names of those at the end in more detail. But speaking of that, then, what did you think of the recent exchange between uh, Pearl and Matt Walsh on Twitter, now X? Because if the listener doesn't know, Pearl, who's got a very popular YouTube channel, was essentially saying marriage is a trap. 
women are not wife material anymore. They initiate most divorces. Then the men are eight times more likely to commit suicide after a divorce. And she claims that the, the trad cons, traditional conservatives, are pushing a dangerous agenda on men by suggesting they get married. Matt Walsh, on the other hand, et al., saying marriage not only works, but is a bedrock of society that's worked for millennia. And you can do a lot to reduce your chances of a divorce on a personal level and not just become a statistic. So where do you stand on that debate? Yeah, it's interesting that we now have commentators like Pearl, Rollo Tomasi and others who claim to stand against feminism and yet are pushing for the same things that are really high priorities on the feminist agenda because the attack on marriage was always one of the main thrusts of feminism almost goal number one going right back to the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 the first feminist convention throwing off wifely obedience was top on their list they thought that marriage was a patriarchal oppressive institution a line of thinking that Marx also pursued he wanted to break down the family so it's funny how it comes full circle so that the people who claim to be anti-feminist are advocating to men a viewpoint that many feminists would actually love guys not getting married that's been the plan for feminism for a long time is it true that marriage is a risk yeah of course it is but who said that a big part of masculinity was trying to avoid all risks i thought that men were supposed to be up for doing hard things and show courage and if there's any area if there's any battlefield worth fighting over it's marriage in the family because what's the alternative just to admit defeat before you even get boots on the ground in that arena of course not this goes back to the fall of rome with emperor augustus asking the young men if we don't get married and have children raise them in families how can the commonwealth be preserved he tried to introduce his marriage laws in a similar context in many ways so i don't go in for this despairing black pill that marriage is dead now and we live in a post-marriage world i think that's nonsense there's no record of any human society without marriage and the family because it's something that's built into human nature and human nature never changes and we're facing a situation now where if you were going to advocate against marriage, you should also be advocating for celibacy. Otherwise, what you're doing is playing into the hands of the radicals who wanted to promote unmarried sex, promote promiscuity, so that it would weaken the family and therefore strengthen the state because it has to mop up the mess. So Pearl's made some good points, but I don't hear her also telling men, if you're not going to get married, then if you're having unmarried sex, that essentially makes you a feminist because that's what the sexual revolution was built on. What can men do to reduce the chances of divorce? You can reduce the statistical correlates of divorce to something like under 10%. If you are marrying a woman who's uh, religious in her early 20s, has never cohabited with anybody before and is also a virgin. Oh, that sounds like a unicorn. They don't exist. Not true. You can find them and the matchmaking service that I'm running, we see plenty of them. What they don't find, though, is men who actually want to get married. So there's these two groups of people who are just talking across each other and we need to connect them. Hmm. Gets a bit hard as you get older, maybe, to be like, oh, I need to find a virgin. People are like, that's a bit creepy after a certain age, probably. That's, that's probably one issue, but could definitely work for younger people. Yeah, true. Although 
met plenty of women in their early 30s who are virgins and also some men as well. I think more and more people are just saying we don't want any part of this degenerate culture around us. We recognize that it's harmful, but they aren't finding like minded people. Yeah, I mean, do you think we have to have, I know what you're going to say, but let's just set up the question. Do you think we have to have a promiscuous phase as men? Because that's something that the mainstream and the red pill would both say. In the mainstream, it's just like, oh, you know, you've got to have your fun or your wild oats, whatever the phrase is now. Yeah. And then red pill says a similar thing, that you need to build a certain level of experience or one, your woman will end up cheating on you. They always seem to think that she'll end up cheating for some reason. And then the other thing is they think you won't have the relevant experience if you don't do that. There's this idea that you somehow get it out of your system if you do that. And then when you finally settle down and get married, then you'll be a really good dad. Like a light switch will just go on in your brain and all those bad behaviors you've engaged in for the previous decade won't affect you. When you talk to guys who've actually followed that advice and pushed it far, really taking it seriously. What they say is, no, you don't get it out of your system. You get it into your system because every action that you take is building a habit. What the old school philosophers from the classical world used to call virtue or vice. The more you do something, the more second nature it becomes. So what you're doing by engaging in that behavior for 10, 15 years, some of these guys say don't get married before 35, that kind of thing. What you're doing is essentially building the vices that are going to make you a bad husband, a bad father, because you're training to look at women as just partners in that kind of behavior. And you're weakening your ability to resist temptation there. So I would disagree. And even the premise that sex is something that you do for yourself betrays the fact that this is fundamentally a liberal worldview that they're coming from. They don't see sex as rooted in the reality of children and the family. They see it as some kind of transaction instead. And if your view of sex and marriage is transactional rather than transcendental, then I'm sorry, but you were part of the problem, not the solution. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. There's not many areas where you say, get it out of your system in that way. Like you drink alcohol, every day for 10 years that'll get it out of your system it's like no you become an alcoholic <laughs> it's a good point actually yeah yeah exactly. it could work for some things but not for yeah not for everything um so you've said quite interestingly and you you did just touch on it there that promiscuity is feminist and that's something we don't always hear i don't know if you've got anything more to add on that but it's basically because you know you said it started in 1848 and so on and then you've even gone further than that, well, kind of the, and, and the next step. And you've actually said, I've heard you say feminism is misogynist because it says be like men. So these are two sort of quite interesting counterintuitive points. Any comment on that? Well, let's deal with the first one first. Okay. So if you go back to some of the radical feminist thinkers, and by radical, I don't mean extreme. I mean root. Radical literally from the etymology of the word means the root, the, the root of feminism was the attempt to overthrow wifely submission. And one element of that was sex outside marriage, because then the woman was no longer under the authority of the husband. But there's an interesting line of thought developed by Kate Millett in the late 60s and 70s. And she was thinking what the best way to undermine patriarchy would be. You know, we hear about smash the patriarchy as the great feminist slogan and goal. And she said, right, we need to figure out a way to undermine male authority. How do we do that? Break down the family. How do we do that? 
we undermine monogamy. And then how do we do that? Promote promiscuity. So one of the reasons for the sexual revolution was basically as a way to get men by the balls. Think of it as like history's greatest honey trap. Let's offer them free love. And Jeff Dench, who was a British social scientist writing around the 1980s, he described the sexual revolution as in large part the male stampede from responsibility. The stampede from responsibility because you've got hordes of young guys being offered this honey trap, free love. You can get the tingles, you can get the pleasure, but without the duty, without being encumbered by family, the responsibilities of children. And they, to be honest, quite like the sound of this, a lot of them, and they fell for it. And that's how feminism was able to control men through lust, essentially. And the men who continue that, all they're doing is advancing the feminist goal of weakening the family, undermining men in society, strengthening the state. The irony, though, is that it doesn't really smash patriarchy. It just makes an alternative patriarchy of the welfare state, which supplants the domestic male provider with big daddy patriarch in the form of the state. And all the single mothers get collected in a kind of harem. And of course, they're so loyal to Big Daddy State because he's the one who pays all their bills in the form of taxes collected from the single guys who are now no longer rooted in families. Hmm. I've heard that with more regard to the USA, where there was these incentives for women to not have a man in the home because that that because then they could get welfare. And it, some people say it came in with with LBJ. And then I've also heard the common idea that you've just replaced your husband with a boss in your boring, soulless <laughs> office job. Although I haven't heard that much the idea of the, the alternative patriarchy of the welfare state. That is interesting. And so that's the why promiscuity is feminist. Very interesting. And then I'm wondering if there's more in that, or if I should ask the other question about why feminism is actually misogynist. Because the, the obvious take on you for a casual zerbal, like, oh, this guy's some sort of misogynist, that would be the sort of attack. But actually, you're very against misogyny in, in everything I've seen you do. And you've said that feminism is misogynist essentially because it says, be like men. Yeah, sure. What is the ideal that's held up to women? The thing that you're supposed to tell young girls to go after to achieve? Basically, it's the male role. It's the boss babe who crushes it in the boardroom. If a girl says that her dream is to be a stay-at-home mother, for example, well, she soon finds out that feminism isn't all about choice. It's only making the choices that they think are worthwhile. So the idea that feminism is misogyny, there's a deep irony in that because if you truly valued what it really means to be a woman, the essence of womanhood being the potential for motherhood, then you would be supporting that stay-at-home mother, stay-at-home wife role. But that's the exact thing that they demean. My wife deals with it all the time as a stay-at-home wife and mother of coming up for 20 years now with seven kids. Oh, what do you do? What's your job? And then the looks of pity or just outright confusion when she says, well, that's it. That's more than enough for me to be dealing with. Yeah, Definitely kids. keeps me on my toes. But the idea is that there's been this tremendous sacrifice and she's missed out on this wonderful world of office politics and the nine to five grind that truly fulfills a woman. So I don't think that feminism truly values 
really what women want. Yeah, that is interesting. And no one can say you're not um, walking the walk by having seven kids. And uh, yeah, the idea that you'd need a job on top of that is is a bit absurd. That's where we are now. But it's my understanding, actually, from people like Louise Perry, that the earlier feminists, maybe not back in 1848, I'm not sure exactly what period she's talking about, but a certain time prior, feminists were very much on board with the family and children and so on, but it's, and they were Christian. But at some point, it switched. And I was going to actually ask you about this, because, because obviously you're a, a staunch Catholic. So my question is, is feminism actually a child of Christianity? Or, you know, because Louise Perry, in a recent essay about how we're repaganizing, said feminism is not opposed to Christianity, it is its descendant. And her point was that Christians, so I'll just read out what she said, actually. She said, whereas the Romans regarded male chastity as profoundly unhealthy, Christians prized it and insisted on it. Early converts were disproportionately female because the Christian valorization of weakness offered obvious benefits to the weaker sex, who could, for the first time, demand sexual continence of men. Feminism is not opposed to Christianity, it is its descendants. So, what do you think of that? I'm not sure how she's defining Christianity, but from the teaching of the Catholic Church, men and women have different roles and they're ordered towards each other in different ways. So even before the fall in the biblical narrative of Eden, Eve is under the authority of Adam. There isn't equality between the two of them. And St. Paul teaches that the husband is the head of the wife and wives must obey their husbands. Now that idea of hierarchy and authority and obedience within the structure of marriage is anathema to feminism, but it's fundamental Christian doctrine. Is it true to say that Christianity respected women's rights in a way that pagan cultures didn't? Yeah, of course. Christians were the first to educate women. They were also the first to introduce separate prison cells for women, so they didn't get raped. They weren't going in for exposing baby girls at birth to kill them on the mountainside, as some pagan cultures did. So, of course, it brought in enormous improvements to women's lives, but that's not feminism. Feminism is something distinct and different, and it's a challenge to the authority of the male over the woman within marriage specifically. That's what the first feminist convention in 1848 said when they wanted to overthrow the wifely obedience to the husband. That's what Marx was interested in too when he was attacking the family to undermine the structure of patriarchy. And that's really what feminism's about. And in that sense, there's no Christian feminism. So she's being loose with the term there in pretending that feminism just means respecting women. So that's where I disagree with her. Ah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, yeah, well, her argument was about the vulnerability of women that was recognized and f- sort of, f- I don't know if the word is foregrounded, but it was, it, was, it was, the vulnerable in Christianity was suddenly given primacy or recognized in a way they weren't. She said you couldn't, in, in, prior to that in the pagan time, it, you, it was only rape if, if, if there was going to be some penalty from a male, from male kin. It was only a pragmatic issue. So you, if someone was poor, then it wasn't rape. Whereas Christianity said, no, no, these, these are people with souls. You can't do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then she says that that lead, will lead feminists inevitably, in her words, feminists, to have to take a pro-life stance because the most obvious vulnerable group is the unborn baby. And that's where some that's where people are going to get uncomfortable. Well, many on, on the feminist side. But I, I see your point that it, 
that it rests on a certain definition of feminism. I wonder if feminism there is a sort of gateway drug to conservatism that someone like Louise Perry is still clinging to the word. She's called herself a reactionary feminist. But is that getting to the point where you may as well just actually drop the term feminism and just admit you're a conservative? Most people aren't willing to do that, though, because when push comes to shove, most people who call themselves conservative uh, really are feminist in that they don't believe that the husband has authority over the wife. Now, someone like Aristotle would say that this isn't just about husbands and wives within the what the church calls the natural society of the family. This is just all men, point blank, have authority over all women. Now, I don't take that view. I don't think that some unmarried man just walking down the street has authority over all the unmarried women that he meets. But marriage, that contract, that institution involves the husband as the head. Yeah. Some conservatives don't buy that idea. It makes them feel really uncomfortable. And for that reason, they are challenging male headship and they are feminists. I think Louise Perry, from what she has written elsewhere, and from what her remarks are implying here about the idea of equality and dignity would take uh, take a front to the idea that the, the husband uh, commands obedience from the wife. Yeah, I definitely agree that you scratch most conservatives and you find a feminist. You see in any culture war issue, they instinctively default to feminism, most of them. That's what I've noticed anyway. And, um, and, and as you say, it's there in the Bible. We've been doing a, a Bible series with the Reverend Jamie Franklin. I've just been reading through Genesis and naively asking him questions. He's the expert, I'm not. But, but you're right, the authority was there before the fall because God blames Adam when Eve gives him the fruit and he immediately blames God. So well, Adam and says, well, why were you eating it? What were you doing? I'm going to curse you as well now. Uh, and, and, but then again, these people wouldn't, many feminists obviously wouldn't recognize the Bible as any kind of authority. So that's not a useful appeal to them. But yeah very interesting they, they they can't stand that idea of the men as the, as the man as the head but that idea isn't necessarily saying the man is superior is it it's just a question of a role it doesn't mean better this might be what people struggle with i mean what is your actual you may have given it already what is your actual definition of patriarchy so patriarchy literally means rule by fathers as a system of government a way to run society it's rule by fathers and this goes back to the concept of what the ideal citizen really is in Western culture. We've got the a married head of a household, he owns property and he bears arms in the defense of family and nation. This has been the figure who's been considered as the ideal citizen, going all the way back to, to Greece, Rome, and also until recent times too. So patriarchy is about power to fathers and it recognizes the fact that even in pre-Christian societies, the state is an outgrowth of the family. So the family unit is the basis, and then that grows into the tribe, into the village, into the city, and eventually into the extended family of the nation. And that's why the king traditionally was called sire, which is a parental metaphor. He's like the father of the nation, metaphorically. So patriarchy just recognizes that reality. And fine. Some feminists might not recognize the Bible as being authoritative, but all the Bible does, according to the teaching of the Catholic Church, is it clarifies. So Revelation just clarifies what we can know already by natural reason. What does that mean? We can look around as just good Aristotelian students of the empirical order, the world we see around us, and we can see what happens and we can make conclusions. So you can talk to secular evolutionary anthropologists and say, guys, 
um, looking at the whole of human history, has there ever, ever been a matriarchy? And they say, no, a patriarchy is universal, history-wide, all times, all places, men rule. They hold the reins of power in government and in warfare everywhere. There was no point where explorers went to the American plains, for example, and found men sitting at home looking after the babies and the women were the war chiefs that they had to do business with. Patriarchy is everywhere, even in non-Christian societies. So that's why the attempt to smash it involves fundamentally the attempt to try and smash human nature. It's like the socialist revolution. You can try it as many times as you like, but eventually it's going to run aground on the rocks of reality. And that's why we're seeing what we're seeing now with the promiscuity, the sexual liberalism that was introduced in the 60s, especially on its last legs now, I think. Most people think this can't continue unless they take the view that it's just despair and there's no point and try and enjoy the ride and participate in it before it all comes crashing down. Yeah. So I like that thing about the family being the essential unit of society. Then it moves out towards the state. I think that's what Scruton calls the oikos, if I'm not mistaken. And then then this point about all societies that have been patriarchies is pretty important. I've been thinking about that recently with regards to crime. And I don't know if you saw that democrat woman in america in minnesota who had been saying dismantle the police and then she got mugged and assaulted which is very nasty but she immediately said we need to take back this city and law and order she basically turned into sort of batman or rorschach immediately she went full law and order because she'd she'd seen the result of her beliefs and i certainly wasn't reveling in her pain because her children were there it was unpleasant but we do see this, uh, well, actually, a, a manager's been shot dead in Philadelphia called Josh Kruger, who was advocate, who was playing down gun violence in Philadelphia. Then he got shot. It was a similar-ish example. Another example was Daniel Penny, where he, he had to stop someone who was dangerous, but then he got in trouble. And we've also seen in, in the UK the police giving up their guns because they get criticized for when they have to use their guns. So my point here, I'm being a bit rambling, but isn't it that actually society rests on a kind of necessary male violence that we're uncomfortable with. There's destructive male violence, which is the criminals just slashing people up for no reason. Then there's a necessary corrective male violence, and that's what we are uncomfortable with, but it's always there underpinning everything. Yeah, and we shouldn't be surprised by this because the, the most bloodless political ideologies, the ones that have a sunshine, unicorns and rainbows view of human nature, that if we can just fix a couple of things that we've created badly in society, that everyone will be flourish, it'll be peace on earth, heaven on earth, they always end up producing the bloodiest realities historically. People who think that human nature is fundamentally good and we can create utopia on earth end up raising hell. If we recognize, and this really attacks the root of the liberal worldview, if we recognize that naturally we do actually tend towards disorder pretty easily, like virtue is a hard thing to accomplish. Any parent of young children knows this. Ask any teacher in any school how easy it is to lose control of a class of teenage boys, for example, when you're trying to teach them, I don't know, Jane Austen on a gloomy winter afternoon when they'd rather be out playing sport or computer games. That kind of effort, that intellectual effort doesn't come naturally to people. Good behavior has to be taught. It has to be achieved through corrections, discipline. It's the same way with the reality of violence in society, too. 
chivalry was the great way in which this was approached in the past. It was a way of saying, look, males have an important role. Male violence has an important role as well. But we're not going to say it's all about machismo, just being like the rooster strutting his stuff, dominating everyone, intimidating them, fighting everyone who comes your way. We want to say that the role of male strength, the moral purpose of it is for the protection of the weak. And this is about the father and his wife and children, first of all. But it also extends beyond that because the family is the basis of society. It extends to the fact that that father in bearing arms defends his country as his extended family and what's been handed on to him by his ancestors and what he's protecting for his descendants too. So that's what male violence is really about. It has an honorable purpose to it. It's not oppression. It's about protection. Can it go wrong? Yeah, of course it can. Things in life can go wrong. Doesn't mean that they are in themselves essentially bad though. So yeah, I think it's fair to say you're more Hobbes than Rousseau then. And, and the other point sprung to mind then was when you're talking about kings and stuff. I was thinking, I said the other day on, on X that um, it all went downhill after kings stopped leading their troops into battle. You know, they went in with their own sword. <laughs> 1743 is when people tend to place that. So I think that's what we need to get back to. Um, some of the points there just put an obvious question in my mind that I'm going to have to ask, which is, what about your views on Andrew Tate speaking about machismo? Now, I'm on pretty good terms with Tate. We have DM'd. I am pro-Tate, but just because he's a refreshing change in the culture, and I don't believe the allegations against him like human trafficking, or of course I wouldn't support him. But what is your take on the Tate phenomenon? I quite like about 80% of what he says. And I think that, you know, if I went to the gym with Tate or went to the pub with Tate, I have a great time. There's a lot that we would agree on. And I like the fact that if a guy comes to him saying, oh, I'm depressed, he'll say, get in the gym, get in shape, uh, make some progress in your business life, tackle those things first rather than pop pills. I think that's sensible. Men need to hear that. And the fact that his message resonates shows what young men aren't being given in schools and universities. So that's good. However, the 20% or so that he gets wrong, I think he gets very badly wrong because this concept of what constitutes a high value man, let's just get an abstraction from some of the things that Tate talks about or promotes. It's a guy who has earned as much money as he possibly can, even if it involves uh, pimping girls online in a webcam business, for example. Um, it's a guy who is willing to sleep around. Not once have I heard Tate say that men should wait until they get married before they have sex. In fact, he seems to be open to men using this value that they accrue through whatever means necessary, even the exploitation of women, uh, to attract more and more women to gain more and more experience with. And the danger of that is that you're doing exactly what the feminists want you to do in the first place, engaging in promiscuity, weakening the family, harming children as a result. Many of these guys who might engage in that from, let's say, age 20 to 35 or so, whether they realize it or not, abortion is likely to be a part of their lives. They might not say to the women they've impregnated, I want you to have an abortion, but they are fundamentally violating the rights of their children to be raised by married parents. So there's some of what he says that's good, some of what he says that I think is sadly just advancing the agenda that 
feminists would want. And in that sense, he's like the last laugh of feminism because some of those radicals, we go back to Kate Millett in the 60s, 70s, they could point to him and say, this is exactly the kind of man that we would hope that Western men would look up to. He is advancing our goals and we can use this kind of person. So many millions of young men looking up to him, basically continuing on those two fundamental pillars of the sexual revolution, unmarried sex, contraception. That's what feminism was all about. Very interesting answer. Uh, on a, to be fair to, well, his brother Tristan, I believe, specifically said to a partner, don't have an abortion. And then he, he has a child because of that. Though I understand your point, there may be un abortions against their knowledge. Um, very interesting. I mean, they seem to be almost more, you could say pagan. I know Tristan's a Christian and Andrew's a, a Muslim, but you could almost say they, they've got this old fashioned approach of they have, have multiple wives and stuff like that. So it's, it's not, they're, they're toning down the promiscuity thing now, but they still think you can have kind of several wives and just have a lot of children so I, obviously you wouldn't approve of that my point on it is really that men have sort of spoken so there was a poll and this was even in a bbc hit piece on tate there was a poll that 52 percent of young boys i think it was 16 and 17 year old boys were pro tate and when i speak to taxi drivers after work when i speak to my barber and not just blue collar when i speak to my accountant they all love tate and they love him for that 80 percent that you're talking about the broad strokes which is that the whole culture has been attacking men and this is a guy that isn't attacking men so we like him. I mean, we saw that clip the other day. Obviously, it led to chaos later at GB News, which I can't really go into. But it was the uh, Jeff Norcott on Politics Live. I don't know if you saw it, where the two women just completely minimized male suicide in a kind of insane way. They just couldn't reckon with the idea of, of male suicide on the 50 being a serious issue. And they felt they had to shut it down and mention the wage gap. And the reason I bring that up is, is masculinity seems to be on the radar of the mainstream. But they're not quite ready to talk about it. But they're, they, they're finally having to reckon with it. But then like Caitlin Moran will come out with a terrible book on it saying men have to be like, talk about their feelings and basically be like women. I mean, have you noticed this finally that creeping into the mainstream? But do you see it as an issue that whereas people like you are, are sort of way out there talking about patriarchy and the, and the quite sort of complicated concepts, the, the normal man, who, like the men in my football team or something, are kind of trapped in the, in the feminist paradigm and they haven't really reckoned with all this yet. Yeah, I think not to be conspiratorial about it, but I actually think that's why Tate is quite a useful tool for the present regime, because he's a good way of containing all that unrest in the mass body of men feeling frustrated with these failed feminist messages they've been getting from, in many cases, even the churches, but certainly from schools, from their parents, from universities, and in the workplace too. What Tate does is he gives them what looks like a really plausible seeming alternative, at least superficially, because it's about embracing suffering, not whining, get to the gym, earn money, what most people think of as being like traditional rock solid masculinity. But when you deep dig deep down, you can see there's actually a fair bit of common ground between Tate and the feminists. That's what people aren't yet ready for. And that's what would be truly countercultural. So you're right. I'm more extreme than Tate is agree with him on some things, but would undermine him on others. But that's the only way out of this, because if I ask myself, what is it precisely about the sexual revolution that Tate, stands against i've never been able to figure it out mm, interesting and what about jordan peterson then who who criticized tate the other day praised him to a degree he called him a, 
a monster. He, he meant in a sort of Jungian sense. He, but he conceded it's better to be tough than not tough. But if toughness also comes with the webcam studio, he was, you know, he's not on board. And then Tristan pointed out, well, that was just one thing Andrew did ages ago, and it was more Tristan's thing, blah, blah. But what's your take on Peterson? Is he any better for, for, for men? Peterson, I think, functions in a similar way in that he gives some countercultural messages, but I don't see that Peterson is uh, fundamentally in support of the idea that husbands have authority over wives. I also don't see Peterson talking about Christianity in any clearly committed way. I think he's been flirting with it for a while and he's happy to talk about the Bible in metaphorical terms. But this idea that it's literally true and that patriarchy is rooted in the transcendent, the ultimate authority of God, the father with the capital F and how that's just delegated to the earthly father in each individual family, just like Pope means papa or father as well christianity shot through with patriarchy from the top to the bottom i think peterson is the sort to uh, criticize parts of feminism he's probably more outspoken against the sexual revolution than tate is so that's a good thing but i don't think he's really given a full answer either very interesting what 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 do you actually mean just to get specific by authority over the woman just in case any women are listening and going hang on what does he mean nick what, what's your definition of that in, in a practical way in the home yeah so when saint paul says that uh, wives must obey their husbands literally means that so wives are commanded to respect and obey husbands are commanded to love so think of it in terms of like the captain on a sports team so the job of the captain is to organize the plays and make sure that the whole team is performing their best so they can achieve the goal of playing well and winning the match. The role of the father within the family is basically a bit like that. Now, this comes with it's like a double-edged sword. So yes, he has authority, but it's not really for his own benefit. It's not that he can just walk around with a whistle or a little hat on saying, I'm the boss. It's about trying to take on all the responsibility of saying that everything within the household ultimately rests on me. If something's going wrong, I blame myself rather than pointing the finger at my wife or my kids, whatever it is. I assume that just like a captain on board a ship or on a sports team, if there's a problem somewhere in this area that I'm in charge of, I'm the one fundamentally who has to fix it. No victim narratives. But yeah, it does mean Things like, let's say the the wife was going to, um, had planned to wear an outfit that was too revealing and was going to leave the house. And the husband said, oh, could you change your outfit, please? I don't think that one's modest enough. Then she would just go and do it because what he said is for her own benefit and it's the right call. Feminists don't like that idea of the adult woman being told what to do and having to follow instructions from the husband. That's why when I said about the Seneca Falls, 1848, wifely obedience was the number one thing that they wanted to get rid of. That's what feminism really started with. You're right. It's an idea our culture is very uncomfortable with. Obviously, when women hearing that, are just like, oh, I'll wear what I want. It's similar actually to the the argument Tate had on Piers Morgan about if a woman wants to walk down the street at night, if he's supposed to have authority, if he's supposed to have responsibility for her and has to fight the guy, then he can be, say, no, you can't walk down that street. And they got into this quite tedious debate about that because actually, though, I think Tate was right in that case. You've got to have, how can you have responsibility without authority? That's really what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, and to come back to 
Jeff Dench's point about the sexual revolution being a male stampede from responsibility, when guys complain now, or oh, where's my authority? Well, it's because you haven't taken the responsibility that comes with it. And the idea played around in played around with in uh, some of the political discourse about this, that the, the 1950s represent what the trad con ideal is no not really the 1950s have still got that fundamental rot of liberalism because many of these guys had wives who worked outside the home many of them also conflicted with the teaching of the church in using contraception for example and wanted to limit their families to just two kids so saying that that is the patriarchal ideal no, not in reality at all. You have to go back to when religion hadn't been relegated to the private sphere as like something dirty or weird that people just did in their homes or their bedrooms and was actually dominating the public square properly. How far back would you go for your ideal 1917? Where does where, it go back to? Well, good question to think about. I wonder whether there would be a specific year that we could pin it on. Something like 1947 um, in America, there was an interesting case with, um, I think it was a Board of Education versus Everson. And that was the first time in US history where it was made legal to disestablish Christianity as the state religion. A lot of people don't know this, that America fundamentally was what they call like an integralist or Christian nationalist nation. And in 1947, uh, that was gone back on. So Christian morality, for example, in schools was no longer a legal requirement. So I would say that's probably a pretty significant turning point where the state becomes avowedly secular. And we can see the idea that Christianity no longer holds any significant sway in the way the culture is actually dictated legally. People say that um, politics is downstream of culture. And I think that's largely wishful thinking. Um, what really happens is we see that changes are brought in law first, and then downstream from that, we see cultural changes and political changes. So that 1947, I think, would be a, a big moment to look at. Very interesting. Hitchens sometimes cites the Equalities Act 2010 here as putting Christianity on a equal footing with every every religion like Scientology. They're all equal. And that being a big loss, although probably like the final death blow for Christianity more than the original blow since it was already massively in decline. Yeah. So just because you've got limited time, this might be a slight jump, but I just really want to get your take on incels because obviously we hear lots about incels <laughs> and you put a provocative thing on Instagram. You said you're not an incel. You're just too proud to accept the women you can actually get, <laughs> which was pretty funny. I mean, I did think about. Hypothet let's say there was a person hypothetically who went out with a very attractive woman and then was like, oh, I've got to now meet that level. I'm not saying it's happened to me. I'm just saying hypothetically it could. That is a kind of bad mindset to get into. And Chris Rock talks about it and says um, men can't go back in bleep a certain word, but he basically, we, we can't go back. I mean, is that, is that it? Is people, are people just getting ridiculous standards because they're on all these apps or they're watching porn or something? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Normally you hear people say that social media has made women get really inflated expectations of the kind of man that they can win as a husband or if not a husband just as a sexual partner 
probably that's true, I think. And it's one of the ways in which the what they call the sexual marketplace has changed as a result of the sexual revolution. So women naturally just looking at the biology of things because they're the limiting factor in reproduction. Uh, you know, compared to eggs, sperm are pretty cheap, just to put it that way. Darwin wrote about the choosy female and the competitive male. So the female in all species is like the prize that the male is after. And what monogamy did, what marriage did, was uh, achieve what biologists call assortative pairing. So everybody pairs off at the level that they can get. The 10 out of 10 men might get the 10 out of 10 women, the 9 out of 10 women, because men are willing to, to date down slightly, uh, women not so much. But once you break that down, then the top men can basically absorb a lot of the women. It produces an unstable society, but that's what happens. Monogamy solves that problem. If we see monogamy go away, and it does mean that a lot of men are going to find it harder to get the kind of women they would otherwise have been able to get. However, I think that it's also true to say that social media has made it so that men are bombarded with images of women that normally they wouldn't have seen. And they do get this idealized image of the kind of woman that counts as attractive. And I've seen it firsthand with the matchmaking service that I'm running. You can present mid-twenties guys with virtuous, average-looking women, and the guy will just say, I don't care that she's a virgin and that she really wants to be a traditional wife and mother. She's not hot enough for me. And you're looking at him thinking, she's about the same level as you, mate. Like You're not a superstar and you should just go with this. You have a good life with her. But they're always holding out for the woman that they have in their mind, in their fantasy. So that's why I said that it's not always real involuntary celibacy. It's not really incel. Some guys are just fussy and too proud. Yeah, and we have to re remember the hot crazy matrix that still holds today if you've <laughs> seen that video. Yeah. So we have to, have to bear that in mind. Um, so I totally forgot to ask this question. We don't have much time, but I, so it's out of sequence, but I really want to know, um, I think you've said that the trans movement also comes from feminism. I think you've said that. I mean, I've always thought that something like that because it, the the gender critical feminists say this is misogyny right and i always think it's, it's quite unlikely that it's misogyny although i say a man in a woman's changing room could be called a sort of misogynistic outcome or incident that i, I find it very unlikely that the impetus for it really because it comes from the left it seems very unlikely that it's sort of misogyny it's much more likely it's some brand of leftism yeah. or feminism so the the book to read on this for anyone interested is by timothy gordon the guy that I run the podcast with, and it's called The Case for Patriarchy. It was published in 2018, I think, and it was really ahead of the game because Tim argued that feminism was the original gender dysphoria. And it's so true because when you are challenging the essence of what it means to be a woman, which is the potential for motherhood, why isn't a trans woman really a woman? Even though they might have the long hair, the heels, the makeup, the career, the cosmetics, whatever it might be. It's because they can't get pregnant. There's no potential to actually become a mother. If you pull out that linchpin of what it means to be a woman, then it's a free-for-all. A guy can say, what? Well, if that isn't necessary to be considered as a woman, then I can tick all the boxes. So that's why feminism opened the door to the trans movement. So when you start to see women in suits and women in the boardroom, 
holding up that as what it means to be a woman, then of course any guy can come in and play that game. That's exactly what's happened. Hmm. So the fundamental divide remains, would you say the potential for motherhood versus a man having the potential for fatherhood? Because you, you did another piece where you said that's really what defines a man, not even fatherhood, but the potential for fatherhood. So is that just the, where the bottom line is? Yeah, and ultimately masculinity is something that is only fully unlocked by fatherhood, just like femininity is only fully unlocked by motherhood. People are going to say, but what about the church teaching that priests have to remain celibate, for example? What about monks? What about nuns? Yeah, that's fine. They never actualize that potential, but it doesn't mean they aren't men or they aren't women because the potential's still there. And even the way that they actually exercise their virtues as men, as women, it still comes out in masculine or feminine ways. So someone like Mother Teresa, for example, is nurturing and motherly in a way that is fundamentally feminine, or a priest with the kind of paternal care that he exercises over a parish or the authority that he has. That's still a masculine role. But the sexual revolution, because of contraception, severed masculinity, severed femininity from that reproductive potential. And that's where it becomes quite confusing, really. What is a woman? What is a man? Once we sever it from those biological potentialities, you can't really answer that question. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Be because this has been so good. I mean, so many, I mean, hopefully it won't get us all cancelled, but I think there's been so much great stuff for me. But just before we have, because you have to go, I really want to know then what should men do i sometimes ask on this show how we win the culture war which is a bigger question but maybe for you the answer is you know through the things we're talking about here so what is it men should do in their lives as a sort of general prescription because you seem to have quite strong views on it yeah so let's assume i'm talking to someone who isn't convinced of the truth of christianity well you can start by acknowledging what the feminists want you to do which is basically don't get married and pursue promiscuity. That's their hope for you. If you want to fight against them, fight back against that. You've got three options, only three. You've got marriage, you've got celibacy, or you've got what the feminists want, which is degeneracy and promiscuity. So decide what path you want to go down. Marriage and celibacy, those are both countercultural now. That's how you can be a radical and fight back. The third path, degeneracy, feminism, you're just like a dead thing floating downstream at that point. It's not going to make you powerful. It's going to undermine you. And you're going to be fragmenting the family and society and become a tool of your enemies. Now, you'll also notice that this is hard for you to do because it involves you having the strength, the willpower to actually control your urges, control your lust. That's how the feminists wanted to get a hold of you and lead you like a bull with a ring through its nose. Find a weak point that they can guide you with. So masculinity and chastity have to be reconnected. E. Michael Jones said that sexual liberation is political control. They want to enslave you through your lust. So you have to work on yourself to become strong in that area first. Once you have developed there, and you want to focus on big cultural change that Christians, non-Christians, red pill, whoever can all agree on, the building block of the current feminist regime 
is really twofold. It is no fault divorce. So if you wanted to get into the profession of being a lawyer, for example, or you wanted to support political action, that's where you should focus your efforts. No fault divorce must be repealed. That was something that even going back to the French Revolution, the counter-revolutionary writer Louis de Bonald wrote about in his book on divorce. He saw that this was fundamental and was like a juggernaut that was going to tear through society and undermine the stability of the family and the state. So no-fault divorce has to go. The presumption of mother custody of children following divorce also has to go. That's another recent development, and it will cost us nothing financially to implement these legal changes. Make no-fault divorce illegal and make it so there's a presumption of the father having custody of the kids in the event that divorce does happen. Those two things most conservative commentators aren't willing to touch, and that tells you how important they are. Hmm. So do you think a, a man can really be happy if he's chased or celibate? Because the incels don't seem to be having a great time. Celibacy is very difficult for most guys to achieve. We've got to remember that taking what I believe is the, the full, complete picture of human nature, most men are called to marriage. God commands, be fruitful, multiply. That's the way that things are supposed to go. If too many people are celibate, then society collapses. It's only ever for the few. And God helps them to achieve them. Achieve that is a very difficult way of life. So most men should be looking at getting married, even if they're not Christian, just for the purely practical benefits. Like married men, statistically, they're happier, they live longer, they're wealthier, they're less likely to commit suicide, etc., etc. So just look at the secular benefits of marriage alone. You can still find good women if you're willing to commit to them. And don't believe this black pill, which the feminists want you to swallow, that marriage is doomed and there's no point even trying. Yeah. I mean, Matt Walsh said the other day, there, there are those problems, no fault, divorce, custody issues. They're not going to change anytime soon. And there's not much an individual can do unless they are a lawyer. So really, you're saying what Walsh said, that you've got to do it anyway, take the risk. And just that's just how it is for now. Yeah. Look, there were young guys who stormed the beaches and fought in various battles throughout history. The battlefield for you now is a different one, but it's just as important. It's marriage in the family, because if we're going to restore patriarchy ruled by fathers, then guess what? We need fathers. And a lot of these guys who have ended up divorced, they were never really married, if we think about what that truly means, the way they're running the households. A lot of them might have been coming home from work, video gaming all night, watching porn, neglecting wives, neglecting children. I speak to women all the time, um, complaining about the way households are being run with good cause because of that abdication of responsibility, the running away from responsibility that Jeff Dench was describing is the root of a lot of this. Men can either sit around and whine about a victim narrative of how women came along and beat them up, stole their lunch money and trampled on them and took civilization away. But even just acknowledging that that's what you're doing, you're crying a victim narrative as a man, most guys don't want to do that. They realize there's something pathetic about it. If men lead, then we got to take responsibility the fact that in many ways men led the way into feminism. 
You can go back before 1848 and point to male feminist thinkers who were the original radicals who wanted to get control of young women to create this instability in the family. Lots of them. Karl Marx was one of them. And men are responsible, not totally, but significantly for the way that feminism has played out. You can go back to Plato's Republic, for example, wanting to take children away from their mothers at birth and be raised by the state. That's a feminist aim as well, indoctrinate them as young as possible. Men have to accept that men are leaders, led the way into feminism, but there's hope there because men can also lead the way out. And now's the time for people to actually get pumped up and do this. You can bitch about it, or you can try to build something better instead. All right, good positive note to end on. Thanks so much for your time, Will. Fascinating stuff. Where can people find you? So I've got a free community that anyone's welcome to join called the patriarchyproject.org. Type that in, patriarchyproject.org. Couple of questions to see if you're the kind of guy who I want in the group. Most of the people are though. And then completely free of charge, you can come and connect with guys who share the same kind of values that I've been talking about on the show today. That's probably the best place because we can't get kicked off that server. But otherwise, you can find me on YouTube. You can find me on X under at be her leader. My old Twitter got nuked. No one knows. But at be her leader. No one knows on Instagram if you want to join in with my content. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, because I keep trying to find you on X. You're almost impossible to find. And even before you got nuked, is so you've been nuked even by the Elon Musk X. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, you they search ban me so you put my name in nothing comes up but my new account be her leader uh that one isn't on the naughty step so you can find me okay so find that one too controversial even for elon musk x that's that's what will's all about all right brilliant thanks so much for doing the show will you're welcome nick it's a real pleasure to speak to you all right that was will nolan fascinating episode one of the best we've done in my opinion really interesting ideas strongly and eloquently expressed and the kind of things you just don't hear in the mainstream. So support Will if you're so inclined. And if you want to support this podcast, then go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. You can buy me a digital coffee, leave a comment, I'll reply to them all. And you can also go to nickdixon.substack.com for my articles for just £5 a month. And let's face it, the more of this kind of content I do, the less likely I am to be able to hold down any kind of normal job. So buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon and nickdixon.substack.com. And we'll see you again next week. <laughs>